with our afternoon session. I know some of you um, have been here already. Do I do? I'm not going to touch on that. Here's the clicker. So I'm oh, going to okay. cover a few of the basics again. Um, today we're going to hear from David Yosfan, who's here at our law school, and his views on corporate patriotism, and then have a response from Dick Levy. Dick is uh, the chairman of the board of Sutter Health and a former CEO and board chair at Varian and uh, nuclear. Oh, I, I left my. Um, cheat sheets about the two of you back there, so now I just got to do it from memory. You can win, you can yeah, win. right, exactly. Um, but he's a, a, a <coughs> nuclear, nuclear chemistry, what did you study? Yeah, nuclear, I didn't even know there was such a thing, so I read it on my cheat sheet. At any rate, um, two very accomplished folks who are going to engage from the academic and the practitioner uh, perspective on this subject, um, because Dick's done his time in boardrooms, uh, corporate boardrooms over the years. Um, we are actually going to podcast their prepared remarks today. So um, we'll be recording at the beginning of the session, and then when we shift to Q&A, we'll turn it off uh, so that we won't be recording the questions and answers. But therefore, if you're thinking about jumping in with a question as they're presenting, that would be captured on the podcast. Uh, so that may um, help you to think about that piece of it. And we are still operating <laughs> under Chatham House rules when we get to the discussion part, which is that um, beyond the presentations, which will obviously be shared publicly, the comments that people make in the, in the conversation and the discussion um, should, should not be attributed back to individuals who made them. You, can, you share topics broadly, but we try and create a space in the room so that we can have a great exchange and a good dialogue. Uh, there are restrooms through the atrium and lunch around the corner. If anybody got here uh, and hasn't had a chance to get something to eat yet, feel free to help yourself. Any questions before we get started? Okay, then I will turn it over to you, David. All right. Hello? All right. Is that too loud? Okay. I haven't started bellowing yet, so. Mm In June of 2014, President Obama gave a speech in which he condemned U.S. corporations that reincorporate abroad in order to evade American tax liability. He condemned them as economic deserters. This scorching epithet echoed and perhaps deepened long-standing anxieties that have been evident in American social and political discourse, uncertainty about whether or not American corporations can be counted on to serve the national interest. And we've seen these concerns echoed in the present um, national presidential campaign. The anxieties have been with us really since the beginning, if you look at it from a historical matter, from a historical perspective, but are especially pressing in an era of global corporate operations, where companies can devastate entire communities by moving factories or operations overseas in ways that perhaps advance the interests of foreign workers and perhaps advance the interests of global capital at the expense of 
the national interest. Companies can move assets overseas, which otherwise might be made available, might be nationalized, or otherwise be made available in times of war or time of national crisis. Companies can park large sums of cash overseas in order to evade American tax liability. Is that, should I just do away with the microphone? Yes. No, no, this is great. Oh, this, okay. All right, now, it may be that, um, that corporate governance law in the United States commands corporations, commands boards of directors to do these things that I am describing, which may be adverse to the national interest. It certainly may be the case, it certainly is the case, I assert, that American corporate governance law commands directors to at least consider doing these things. Because make no mistake, The bedrock corporate governance law in the United States is that directors have an obligation to run the corporation in the best interest of the shareholders. This is not to say that corporations must behave rapaciously. <coughs> As a famous old, uh, uh, it's not to say that corporations must behave rapaciously. Sometimes, we understand that corporations will serve their shareholders best by being good to workers, developing deep abiding relationships in the community, serving consumers well. And when, that, when those interests all align, certainly the shareholder uh, primacy norm may be pursued in that manner. But so stakeholder interests are not always aligned. Sometimes the compass of profitability points towards morally desirable behavior. Sometimes the compass of profitability points in the direction of exploiting workers or dumping into uh, the environment or treating the United States less favorably perhaps than other countries. This point that I'm insisting upon that the bedrock corporate governance law in, in the United States is shareholder primacy is one that is um, obfuscate, obscured in legal discourse, obscured by scholars, but it is one I, uh, I urge that is um, undoubtedly the law. And it is undoubtedly the mindset of corporate directors in our largest corporations. <coughs> I could cite to you cases, um, and I would if this was a, a, you know, a, 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 a legal conference standing alone, in which the courts have explicated. Let's see. <coughs> in which courts have explicated the, the shareholder primacy norm. But I, I, I won't quote those cases, and I, I need not. But I'll just, I will just refer to an old English case, which says that the law is not that there shall be no cakes and ales. 
The law is that there will only be cakes and ales when it is in the interest of the company. And that's the kind of behavior that we see from a company like Apple, where on the one hand, it, uh, when it was fighting a subpoena uh, issued by a judge in, the in connection with the San Bernardino terrorist attacks, where the judge had acquiesced in a prosecutor's subpoena asking the court to command Apple to create a software product that would unlock the terrorist suspects or the terrorists' uh, cell phone, Apple came forward and said, we are fighting the subpoena. And they didn't say we're fighting it because we think it's in the best interest of our shareholders. They said we're fighting it because we think it's bad public policy, that the, this is too draconian an order, and we have a responsibility to contest this kind of unbound political um, command by the state. And yet, on the other hand, when Apple is, is criticized for its uh, labor practices, <coughs> engaging in exploitative labor arrangements in China and other places around the world, it can hide behind the shareholder primacy norm and say, that we have a fiduciary obligation to serve the interests of our shareholders. We're not entitled to reduce profits in order to, in order to improve the condition of workers. Now, again, I, I, I tell you that it's, it's important for us to appreciate and accept that this is the fundamental bedrock corporate governance norm for any of what the rest of what I'm going to say to make sense or be meaningful or be contested. And again, I'll tell you this, if, there, um, if, if any corporate directors doubt that this is the law, I ask you to give the following hypothetical to them. Could you imagine meeting in a boardroom and saying, we have, and, and coming out to the press, and coming out to the shareholders, and coming out to regulators and the courts, and saying that we contemplated selling this division and we believed it would be in the best interest of the shareholders to sell the division under all time horizons. But we concluded that it would be unduly harmful to the workers and to the community, and so we decided not to do it. Ask yourself whether the board, a board would ever say, clearly, squarely, and without hedge, that we could have paid a dividend this quarter but we decided not to. We decided instead to direct that money to improved, improving the wages of our workers and in, 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 in ameliorating the environmental impact of our operations beyond our legal obligations because we consider it the morally responsible thing to do. Under all time horizons, under all time horizons, we believe that shareholders will not benefit from this. It's not that we think this is, this is going to inculcate better relationships with workers or the community. We've satisfied those relationships as far as we can see plausibly possible. We've nevertheless decided not to pay the dividend because we want to serve the workers' interest or the environmental interest. I, 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 it, uh, I'm not citing the case law, but I urge you to reflect upon that hypothetical. And if you believe me, that no board member would ever, would ever say that. And every board member in, uh, in our major corporations would believe that they were violating their fiduciary obligation if they were to say such a thing. Then you agree with me that the bedrock corporate governance norm is shareholder primacy.
So, corporations, of course, are creatures of the state, and corporate charters are only granted, corporations only exist as a result of being, uh, of, of the state granting a corporate charter. So we have a bit of a paradox in the sense that we, here we have a, the state, which can only presumably, can only legitimately exercise its power in the social interest, can only ex exercise state power in the public interest, seems to be contradicted by the fundamental corporate governance norm, which says that sharehold, that the corporation should be run in such a way that advances the shareholder interest. It's a seeming paradox that is reconciled by apologists for the shareholder primacy norm through a series of elaborate arguments which basically boils down to the idea that shareholder primacy gives holders of capital the incentive to invest in corporate operations which produce jobs for workers and, con and goods for consumers and provides a strong tax base for the polity as a whole. I've criticized the, the, uh, the, the coherence of that primacy norm in, uh, on, on its own terms, but it especially begs to be challenged by a focus on the problem of patriotism or the problem of the national interest, whether or not the shareholder primacy norm advances not just the social interest in some general sense or some universal sense, but is the shareholder primacy norm compatible with the dictates of a patriotic conscience. What is patriotism? I, when we have dinner, I try to have dinner most nights with my young children, and when we're all gathered around the table, we often will say a grace. I'm not a pious man, but we, I try to say a simple grace. Um, bless us, O Lord, in these gifts which we're about to receive, amen. If I'm really feeling it, I might throw in a uh, this thy bounty or something. <laughs> but my older daughter, she tries, she gets in on it sometimes and uh, she, do you, would you like to give the, would you like to give the grace and my, and my older daughter will sometimes say the grace blesses the Lord and these gifts we're about to receive. The other day, my three-year-old said, piped in, he said, he, I wanna do it, I wanna do it. He wants to say the grace. So we said, okay, Joshua, you can say the grace. And we turned to Joshua. And he looked up and he said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And of course, we, uh, um, we laughed and we enjoyed it. The next day, I received from, you know, we get these, child, you get these updates from your child care. Uh, these days, they send you photographs throughout the day of what your child is doing. And uh, received this picture in, in my email of, um, of Joshua. And like any uh, middle class intellectual uh, who doesn't know exactly what he thinks about things, <laughs> I was at once filled with enormous pride and satisfaction about this value inculcation that's going on at my three-year-old's um, preschool. And I was horrified <laughs> and, um, and unclear about what we were doing to the boy and whether or not it was legitimate. Because there is an ambivalence that abides in the hearts of my, hearts and minds, not just the middle class intellectuals, but I think of all thoughtful people, 
about the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of patriotism. What is patriotism? Let us say that patriotism is love for one's country, love for one's nation. It's an attitude, a motivating affection. And like other kinds of love, near the core of patriotism or the patriotic instinct, the patriotic conscience, is the idea that we will sacrifice in favor of the object of our love. And quintessentially, patriotism, patri patriotic discourse involves contemplation of self-sacrifice, sacrifice of one's own interests in service of the national interest. But no man or woman is an island. And you cannot, the, the, if you're to sacrifice your own interests, you're sacrificing your collateral relationships as well. If you sacrifice yourself for your nation, you're sacrificing, in some sense, your commitments to your spouse, to your family, to a narrower community. You're perhaps sacrificing your interests to broader values, such as a universal humanism or a globalism. Because at some level, if we're to say that patriotism involves sacrifice for your country, and if we're to say that patriotism is meaningful, patriotism is an important value, a significant value, then it means that if you're patriotic, you're willing to treat people from other countries, you're willing to treat other countries, and because countries are collections of people, you're willing to treat people of other countries differently than your own country or people from your own country. That is, you're willing to privilege your own country or people within your country over those uh, over other countries or the interests of other countries. Not that it doesn't say, I think, patriotism does not require that you be willing to do anything to other countries or be willing to treat other people in any way in service of your own nation. But rather, it requires that on some significant margin, some important margin, you're willing to do so. You're willing to do so in some way that matters. Otherwise, patriotism doesn't matter. Otherwise, it's just a, a fluffy conceit that has no substance and no content. But if it has content, then we'll just say at that margin, we're willing to treat people differently. And yet, this seems to be inconsistent with well-accepted principles of morality in a liberal mindset, liberal in the classical sense. Because after all, morality requires us to treat everybody equally. Morality requires us to treat all human beings as being of an, an equal dignity, doesn't it? Now, we accept that <laughs> we accept that parents treat their children differently than they do everybody else or most everybody else. Not that you can do anything in favor of your child, but you're able to privilege the interests of your child. But this is the very question that is under review, which is do our fellow countrymen and countrywomen deserve to be treated specially, like the family relationship, or is it capricious and arbitrary and immoral 
to make distinctions along the bound of national status, citizen status. Because after all, um, nation, one's national identity is a, for most of us, anybody who has not themselves chosen to immigrate here, most of us are Americans, if we are Americans, as a consequence of our birth, as an accident of birth. It was nothing that we did that's reflective of our own character or deserts. It's a largely immutable characteristic, unless you want to consider emigrating, and for many that's beyond the imagination or not practically plausible. <coughs> so it's an accidental and largely immutable characteristic. Surely morality requires that we not make meaningful, significant distinctions in the way that we're going to treat people on the basis of such arbitrary distinctions. Worse than this, patriotism, the patriotic conscience, the willingness to treat people differently on such a capricious basis, is a dangerous kindle, one that threatens always to inflame into a larger kind of prejudice or bias that can result in xenophobia and war. And so on this line of thinking, patriotism is like racism. And it should be repudiated. And certainly, we should not embrace it at the heart of our corporate governance law. And our corporate governance law, to the extent that it does not accept patriotic conscience in the boardroom and considers patriotic conscience in the boardroom to be contrary to the fiduciary obligations of the directors, in that sense, to the extent that shareholder primacy does ex exclude patriotism, then we should say that our corporate law is virtuous. Or our corporate law is virtuous in excluding patriotism from the boardroom. I want to stop and, and submit that if, if you buy that conclusion, then we have described a kind of strange bedfellows of political alignment. That is, most people, I think, many people, if you're talking about what, uh, what, what people think, right, most people who are in favor of a kind of universal um, love of humanity or view of, 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 of of morality that requires us to treat people without national distinction, a kind of universalist ethos, would tend to be the kinds of people who think that they're against shareholder primacy in corporate governance. But it turns out that if you're a universal humanist, then you might actually be in favor of shareholder primacy in corporate governance to a greater extent than you had thought. And so in the... So um, because shareholder primacy requires corporations to treat all the peoples of the world as being of essentially the same dignity. In the 1970s, during the um, OPEC oil embargo, when the, uh, the oil producing nations of the Middle East uh, decided to embargo the export of oil to those nations that were supporting Israel in a war against Palestine, um, including the United States and many European nations, South Africa, uh, suffered under the confines of this oil embargo, couldn't get access to Middle East oil. At that time, 
the United States government urged American corporations to direct what oil they had to the United States. There were long lines, productivity was suffering, people weren't getting home to dinner with their children, marriages were falling apart, <laughs> long lines were, were, were keeping uh, ambulances from getting to the hospitals. I got this traffic stuff from, Brid from Bridgegate, you know, but, um, but these were the real consequences. One of my earliest political memories, I'm giving away my age now, one of my earliest political memories is sitting in a car, in, a in the back seat of a car in the long line waiting to buy gas, and we had to buy it because it was our day to buy gas. Because the reason we had those lines is because those companies refused the call of the United States government to direct oil to the United States, but instead announced that they would sell oil uh, to everybody equally that they would direct oil to all the impacted nations uh, on an equal basis. Rejected the patriotic impulse and treated people of equal dignity, I think it's in, in a way that you could say was, com was compliant with the shareholder primacy norm in that they were trying to develop long-term relationships with their global customer base. But in any event, it surely wasn't patriotic. Nevertheless, the idea that patriotism is a virtue feels right. It doesn't feel like racism. It doesn't feel like the, it doesn't feel like something that boils up that should be condemned. It does abide in the hearts and minds of ordinary men and women that they're proud and pleased to see their children inculcated with the value of patriotism. And when they're proud to say, not in hushed terms, but proudly that they consider themselves to be patriotic and that they're proud of it. And they'd be willing to act on it. <clears throat> and there is a hallowed philosophical tradition that corresponds with that instinct or that venerates that impulse in the human heart. And that is the view that says that everything that I just said about morality is uh, the wrong way to think about morality. That that way, that liberal conception, that conventional liberal convention of morality thinks about morality as something like geometry or algebra or chemistry, something that can be studied and contemplated in an abstract sense, divorced from cultural engagement, divorced from community involvement that can be read out of a textbook or heard it from a professor's lecture, heard, believed, acted upon in a way that is um, decisive in one's outlook on the world. But that, the defenders of patriotism argue, is not how morality really works in the human species that morality for us always develops, always and only develops in and through our, the relationships that we have in particular communities. That it is our, in, it, that it is our study of, our involvement of, our commitment to a way of life that is a psychological predicate for any of us understanding and embracing and internalizing moral principles. It's not so much that, the, that different societies or different communities develop 
different kinds of moralities. It may be that the moral principles themselves are objective and eternal. But nevertheless, for any of us to learn a morality and to commit to a morality, it can only happen in and through our devotion to a community, to a way of life. And so patriotism is vindicated as being consonant with psychological reality about the human animal. And while universal humanism might be more desirable in a first best scenario, if we were designing human morality in a computer program, for the species that we actually are, patriotism becomes not just a vice, but a virtue and a predicate to any, the development of any kind of moral communities as such. So even if we acknowledge that patriotism will require us, will, will uh, enable us and allow us and require us even to treat, uh, to, to treat humans par uh, parochially, we nevertheless accept that that parochialism is ultimately better for everybody on the planet because it allows for the development of morality, period. Now this argument only shows why parochialism in, is legitimate in ethics and morality, or why it might be legitimate. What it does not show is why the nation should, be, should describe the contours of that community. Why not the city? Why not the planet? Why not a community of the whole species? Two arguments are given by the, by, uh, the proponents of patriotism as being morally acceptable. The arguments are that, first of all, the nation is a workable unit okay, and a very potent sized unit. The family, very easily to be devoted to, very easily to understand and incul inculcate commitment and moral responsibility with respect to the family. But the family is very narrow and not very powerful as an organizing principle. All of humanity, potentially very powerful, but too attenuated, again, for the grasp of the human imagination to get itself around in any kind of real way with respect to um, um, motivating affection. And so the nation is about the right size for potency and moral and, and, and motivating affection. More importantly, I think, is that the nation potentially, sucks, potentially provides a legitimate organizing principle for group affection. And that is, if we are to organize our nations under democratic principles, mm -hmm. recognizing always um, the counter-majoritarian protections for minority interests. That legitimate political structure is what can lend some kind of um, morality or ethical um, uh, uh, goodness <laughs> to the selection of the nation rather than some other structure or organizing principle as the foundation upon which morality will be built. So if this is true, then patriotism is not just okay, not just legitimate, but crucial. A crucial value if we are to be, if humans are to be moral creatures. And if that's so, then the exclusion of patriotism from within the corporate boardroom is perhaps potentially 
pernicious that the exclusion of uh, of patriotism from the corporate boardroom is uh, threatens to undermine the national interest and the very conditions for the formation of morality itself. If you believe that argument, that, and you think that patriotism is, if we have vindicated the righteousness of patriotism, and you think that the national interest might, might threaten to be undermined by the operation of American corporations in the global environment by exporting jobs, devastating communities, sending assets abroad that might otherwise be directed here, then you might seek a reform of American corporate governance law that would invite or require some patriotic conscience in the boardroom. So here, too, let me point out the strange bedfellows. The strange bedfellows is, uh, 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 is that if you thought that you are in favor of patriotism as a general attitude, as a moral outlook, you might also think that you, uh, I, I would assert that among people who routinely describe themselves as being concerned with patriotism, those are often also the very same people who tend to be in favor of shareholder primacy within corporate governance. And so it may turn out that if you are, care deeply about patriotism, then you are actually against shareholder primacy in corporate governance and are for a greater multi-stakeholder orientation within the boardroom than you had thought. So how are we to reform corporate governance if we believe that it would be appropriate to require, to encourage or require our corporations to operate in a way that is sensitive to the national interest, operate in a way that is, that is conscious, conscious of its patriotic responsibilities. Well, I'll tell you that um, one thing we would not do is pass reforms like Sarbanes-Oxley or the Dodd-Frank reforms. Every time that we have a national catastrophe that involves the intersection of corporate operations and the broader economy, the reform from Washington appears to uh, is always, let's get corporations to finally focus their responsibilities the way they should be and advance the shareholder interest. Shareholder primacy, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank are all designed around the idea that the way to fix the problem with corporations is to get them to operate more effectively on behalf of shareholders, for them to be more responsive to the interests of shareholders. The analysis that I've tried to present to you is, to, is the suggestion that it is shareholder primacy that's the problem, and therefore deepening corporate responsiveness to shareholder primacy is clearly not the solution. So what kind of solution might we have? Well, here's a Here's a, um, a, a shareholder proposal that there's a somewhat arcane um, mechanism provided by the federal securities laws which allows shareholders to author proposals that can be put before all of the other shareholders in ordinary corporate elections 
for the shareholders to pass upon, vote up or vote down. Okay, uh, I won't get into the details of the, of the program, but the, the shareholders of Monsanto, or a shareholder activist in Monsanto, recently put forward this shareholder proposal, which would, if approved by the shareholders, would have, would require all corporate directors of the Monsanto Corporation to pledge that they will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I take this obligation freely, recognizing that approval of my nomination as a director of the board of Monsanto brings with it significant personal responsibility. The, um, the board of, of Monsanto was able to get this uh, proposal excluded from the shareholder proxy on the grounds that such a, such a pledge or such a requirement would interfere with the director's bedrock fiduciary obligations to pursue the shareholder. Now, I myself think that the uh, Monsanto Declaration is a bit purple, and not, uh, um, but it, 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 it's, it's, it serves as, a, and I wouldn't necessarily, I, I would not support something of this flavor. But there are reforms that, um, that one might consider, an array of reforms, and I'll just list some uh, for you. I'll just talk about a few that we might pursue. First off, um, I have no doubt that patriotic conscience does abide in the hearts and minds of ordinary men, men and women who sit on the boards of our large international corporations. And undoubtedly, the patriotic impulse does influence, does affect their corporate decision making. But as it happens now, whenever the patriotic conscience is allowed to influence corporate decision making, it does so in a way that is unlawful. It operates in the shadows. It must operate by innuendo, never explicitly. Because the shareholder, the, the director who comes forward and says, under no time horizon was this in the best interest of our shareholders, but we thought it was good for the country. That director exposes herself to duty of loyalty violations. And so to the extent that patriotic conscience does operate in the boardroom, it does so sub rosa. I don't know what sub rosa means, but I think it's appropriate. <laughs> under, under prevailing corporate governance law, patriotism is the love that dare not speak its name. I want to license the speaking of that love in the boardroom and make it clear in our corporate governance law that it is not wrongful for directors to explicitly, openly deliberate upon the consequences of their contemplated corporate action to the national interest. In the first instance, let's bring the conversation out of the heart and put it in the mouth and on the table so that it can be clear and clearly seen and deliberated what the stakes of the decision really are. We might further say that, um, that boards are in, are in fact allowed, or we might say are required, when the stakes are very great, to privilege the interests of the nation over those of foreign nations. 
or at least to treat the interests of the United States, um, it, it, um, at least to privilege the interests of the United States, where uh, doing so would not be unduly harmful to the shareholders. We might say that um, only we might say that in the in a crisis situation, that we might say that corporations have an obligation to operate in the shareholder interest, except in the condition of a national crisis. Okay, consider an, a, a global pharmaceutical company uh, operating or meeting in, in, in the time of a, a global pandemic where a disease is sweeping over the world. And, uh, this seems, unfortunately, to not be um, crazy, even though I did get this hypothetical from watching World War Z. It does, it does <laughs> not seem to be an outlandish hypothetical that we, the, the, the world could be beset with a, a rapid, um, rapidly spreading um, biological uh, disease, disease that spreads. Um, and maybe a pharmaceutical company has the antidote. And they have a limited supply of it. And um, they could direct that supply to the United States, or they could take a universalist ethos and supply the, um, the, the drug globally, maybe putting all the children of the world first. Um, but we might enable corporations in a time of crisis um, to find a safe harbor from the shareholder primacy norm. We might, and I'm going to wrap it up, we might say that, corporate, that the law is that corporations have a responsibility to consider the national interest as a default matter. Every corporation has a responsibility to have a, cor a patriotic conscience in the boardroom. But corporations can opt out of that if they want. If the shareholders uh, uh, explicitly vote to abandon the patriotic conscience, then the firm would be free to operate without it. But then we would all know that the firm has uh, thrown off its patriotic responsibilities. My point is that there are a number, there, there are a, a number of different levels at which we might pursue a reform of corporate governance in order to calibrate what level of patriotic conscience or patriotic responsiveness we wanted to permit into the boardroom. Finally, I will conclude with this. I'm not, I don't mean to say that I am certainly um, in favor of this. I consider the views, um, um, I, I consider the problem to be a very difficult one. And I think that reasonable people, this is a softening Dick's uh, response to me, I think that reasonable people can differ on, on this matter. Okay, I close, uh, I, I close, especially when it comes to, to, to the question of how patriotism should or should not be inculcated in our institutions. I want to close with a quote from Judge Learned Hand when, um, in, in a famous speech that he gave in Central Park during World War II called The Spirit of Liberty. When Judge Learned Hand said, what is the spirit of liberty? I cannot define it. I can only tell you my own faith. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which is not too sure it is right. Okay, thank you. Great job. Um, 
I could make this very, very short by just saying I agree with everything you said. <laughs> uh, but I want to go a little further. Uh, I think the, the outlook is a little more positive than you've said. Uh, and I want to back up a little bit and say how we got to where we are and where we seem to be going right now. First of all, I have never heard the word patriotism used in a boardroom. I've been in a lot of boardrooms over the last 35 years. Uh, that word has never been uttered. The closest people have come to it is say, how will this affect the community we operate in, which is sort of being patriotic to a small, a small area of the world. How we got here, I think, how the business world got here, I think started with Milton Friedman, uh, famous economist, uh, Nobel Prize winner economist, who said in the mid 20th century, and I'm gonna quote this, there is one and only one social responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits. Only one social responsibility, and that's to increase profits. Now, from Milton, views point, from Milton Friedman's viewpoint, it made a little sense. He's an economist. To a man with a hammer, all problems are nails. <laughs> if, if the economy is the answer to everything. And in fact, if you look backwards from the mid-20th century, this was the greatest country on earth, and it was largely the greatest country on earth because the economy was great. We had a wonderful middle class. Our manufacturing capabilities were above everybody. Our technology was above everybody. We had just won a war because of our manufacturing and technology. The business really was largely responsible for how successful we were, and, and that, philosophy has pervaded the business world to this day. There are still editorials in the Wall Street Journal as of last month saying that we have gotten away from this and we have to get back to Milton Friedman type thinking. Well, it's not happening, folks, because I think there are some changes going on that make that definition of social consciousness a little bit different. First of all, and there's a lot of them, you, you know what they are. We have a global re economy today. Companies based in the United States might do 70% of their sales outside the United States. So they have to think about that as they think about what their obligation to this country is. Uh, we have huge diversity, ethnic and cultural diversity. Some people think making money is the highest good. Other people in our country do not think it's the highest good. There are people who think very, very differently and they're part of our country. And they're, they're just not aboard the Milton Friedman type thinking. We have environmental damage. In the 1950s, nobody thought about the environment. There was no scarcity of resources. We weren't destroying the environment. We didn't have global warming to the extent we have it today. Today, we have to think about that, and that is expensive. To the extent we have depleted our resources, it's costing more to do business, and the economy is suffering because of it, and it's gonna suffer a lot worse. There's gonna be a lot more sacrifice required. We have longer life expectancy. Our population is aging. Fewer percentage of our people are productive today than they were in 1950. And that's gonna get worse and worse. And that's gonna get more and more expensive because mm -hmm. those people as they age are also gonna require more health care. Mm -hmm. And so this is again, against the economic drivers that we think make our country great. There have to be some other drivers that make our country great. We've had the rise of a different kind of industry. In the 1950s, the main, main industry was manufacturing. Before that, it was, it was farming. These were industries that were very, very uh, tangible. You could see the results. 
Today, the big industries, the growth industries, are healthcare services, their in information technology, and their financial investing, financial management. And these don't produce anything, they just take care of things. It's a totally different world than we lived in when Milton Friedman made those statements. We have government gridlock, you all know that. Uh, you mentioned Sarbanes-Oxley, which I hate. You mentioned, uh, uh, what's the other one? Yeah, I mean, th this is terrible stuff. This costs the, the companies money and it costs the government money. When I joined Sutter Health, we had, uh, we had six people in our, our security and privacy department to make sure that the patient's records weren't hacked into. That was 11 years ago. Today we have 96 people. As we have increased, and that's, that's helping the, headcare, the healthcare costs go up. As we have increased, the government has had to increase their, their uh, uh, organization to, to keep track of us. So it's expensive on both ends. We're strangling ourselves on these kinds of things. And that's, again, contrary to this whole thing that economy is everything. We have to live with that and we have to deal with that. And we're not doing a good job just yet. And of course, education. Today, our environment, our business environment is a technology, more, more an educated technology. You didn't have to be, go to college to be a farmer or a worker in a, in a machine tool factory. But you have to go to college to do some of the jobs that are available today, and colleges are no, more expensive than they've ever been. So that's not working. All the things that went into those assumptions in 1950 are not working today. So what is working? Well, I'm a little more optimistic that boards are starting to realize that it's no longer the primacy of the shareholders. I've been in board meetings where we talked about inversion, for example. Should we go offshore to avoid taxes in the United States? And originally, the board members all said, yes, we should. Uh, I was against it because I'm a member of the Markala Center for Applied Ethics. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought it was wrong. Not, because, not just because it's unpatriotic, but because it's going to come back and bite us. You can bet within the next five years, there's going to be a law against it, and people that do it are going to be penalized. And it's starting to happen. This kind of thing is starting to happen. They're penalized financially by the government, and they're penalized in the court of, of uh, public opinion. Companies are just paying attention to these things now because it's much, much more important. And it affects their stock price. Companies that do these kinds of things are going to get hit in their stock price. So if boards have a fiduciary obligation to keep the stock price up, they have to do right and they have to have the public relations that say that. There are other things that are happening. Shareholder activism, which, which David mentioned. It's happening. Shareholders are coming in and saying, what are you doing to protect the environment? My company had to write a long report, a very detailed report, on what we're doing to protect the environment, how we're taking toxic chemicals out of the ground, and that sort of thing. Shareholder activism has not decreased. It has increased by total amounts, by a large amount. And this is going to continue to increase. And then there's marketing. I, you know, one of my idols in the business world is uh, uh, Jeff Immelt, who runs uh, General Electric. I don't know if you've ever watched the General Electric or read the General Electric ads. They're making a big push for green environment. Every product they're making now is built around green environment. You think that's going to hurt them? It's not. It's the right thing to do. Their stock price is at an all-time high. The company is doing well. Their, their, their financial performance is not that much better because they have to invest heavily in this. 
but they're all, their long-time their long rule or their long-time success is very much guaranteed. And then there's antitrust. You all know that in the, in the Teddy Roosevelt era, uh, there was a big trust-busting uh, movement afoot. Well, companies are getting too big, banks are getting too big, et cetera, and that is coming apart now. Even though getting big might be in the expense of shareholder, it might be in favor of shareholder value, but it's stopping because the government has stepped in and stopped it. So there's a very pragmatic reason. There's also ethical reasons and patriotic reasons, but what board members really think about is what's the long-term success of this company? And the long-term success of this company I believe, depends on doing these ethical and these patriotic things. And I think we're starting to see it. I can't say it's 100% of companies. It's probably not even 20% of companies. But it's starting to happen. The trend is in the right direction. The message that David gave is very much a message that people are starting to hear. It's coming out more and more, depending on what newspaper you read. It's not in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal yet, but it is in other newspapers. It's certainly in the New York Times. Uh, companies like General Electric are setting an example. Uh, this is starting to happen, so I'm really very optimistic about that. And then finally, we talked about, David asked the question, how do we define patriotism? And as I mentioned, for a company in the mid-1950s, the definition was make money, because there was a trickle-down, trickle-down worked in those days. It'll help the company, help the country. That's patriotism, just the more money you make, the better off this country will be. Uh, I don't think anybody believes trickle-down works anymore. People say they do. doesn't seem to be working. Uh, we don't have trickle-down right now. We have a big polarization between the rich and the poor. It isn't working, even though the top people in the top companies are making scads of money. Trickle-down isn't working, and people are starting to realize that. We live in a democracy. As voters realize what's going on, they're going to demand action. And there's going to be some re recoil against this philosophy of trickle-down, which isn't working. The best definition I've been able to find of patriotism is really an ethical definition. And I'll read it to you. It was said, it was, it, this uh, quote was from George McGovern, who was not a prominent guy. Never won an election, I don't think. But he said, the highest patriotism is not a blind acceptance of official policy, but love of one's country deep enough to call her to a higher plane. Deep enough to call your country to a higher plane, which means doing the right thing, not just for the country, doing the right thing for, for everybody. Uh, and that means getting rid of this Milton Friedman definition of what companies ought to, ought to be doing. I believe it's gonna happen, probably not in my lifetime, but I think in some of your lifetime, we're on the right trend now, and things are changing very, very fast. The world has a lot of troubles, there's a lot of challenges, and I think the smart businesses are starting to realize it and are starting to take, take heed of this. One more thing I would say, and this is an advertisement for, uh, for Kirk Hansen and the Ethics Organization. It used to be sitting in a boardroom, you could talk about, uh, uh, it was easy to make decisions. You do a return on investment analysis, you'd see how much money you were gonna make, You'd see what the impact on the stock price would be and on the investment community in New York, and you'd make your decision, easy decisions. Decisions aren't so easy anymore. Should you lay off employees in the United States and hire them in, uh, in Thailand to save money? Should you do an inversion? Um, should you, what role should you play in this cybersecurity 
deal? Should you be like Apple or should you have open architecture that the FBI should get into? Uh, how should you pay your employees? What should be the ratio of the average employee salary to the top, to the top uh, uh, executive salary? Uh, what about joining companies and becoming too big to fail? What about monopolization? These aren't questions you can just answer by saying what's the economic effect because there are too many other effects. There's government effects, there's public opinion effects, there's uh, long-term viability of the company effects, there's loyalty of your employees, there's loyalty of your customers, et cetera. Boards are starting to look at this in terms of not just making money, but in terms of all the constituencies that have to be taken care of. And that includes customers, that includes employees, that includes partners, that includes your country and the government, and that includes people around the world. The, the decisions are not easy anymore. And one of the things that we've decided in the Markle Center is that ethics is really a process for making decisions. If the decisions take into account the common good, the fairness to all constituencies, respect for the needs of all their constituencies, doing more harm than good, and, and, and living up to your own personal <coughs> virtue, if decisions are used, are made through those filters rather than just how much money do you make, they're going to be better decisions. One other thing I would cite, there's a book called Conscious Capitalism, which has some data on companies that do these kinds of things that are more ethical than others. And invariably, they do better. Their stock price is better, their earnings per share is better, their growth rate's better, their customer satisfaction is better, et cetera. And you know who some of these companies are. Um, General Electric's one of them, uh, Starbucks is one, et cetera. These are more ethical companies. They may not be totally ethical, but they're more ethical than the, than the rank and file. Uh, so this works. Being ethical and doing things right for all constituencies really does work. And we've said the, the, the byline we always use is good ethics is good business, and good business is good ethics. It's more than just making money. So I'm optimistic, David, and I think that your pessimism or your, your uh, your comments about the faults of industry are well taken, but the trajectory is a little bit in the right direction right now. That's my comment. Um, and do you want me to point to